There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek, and you've tuned to this week's episode of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Today's guest is Mike Irwin. Mike graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 2002 and served 13 years on active duty, including three deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. While earning a master's degree in positive psychology and leadership at the University of Michigan, he founded the nonprofit organization Team Red, White, and Blue with the mission of enriching the lives of America's veterans. He currently serves as the 234,000 member organization's executive director. In 2015, Mike co-founded the Positivity Project, a nonprofit organization to empower America's youth to build positive relationships. With 654 partner schools, the organization reaches 388,000 children daily. Mike Irwin is also the co-author of Lead Yourself First, which focuses on how solitude strengthens people's character and their ability to lead with clarity, balance, and conviction. Mike continues to proudly serve the nation as Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves. He's assigned to the United States Military Academy, where he's an assistant professor in the Behavioral Sciences and Leadership Department. Mike Irwin, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Hey, great to be here, Chris. Looking forward to the conversation. No, thanks for your time, sir. And before we begin, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you for your continued service. So thank you, sir, uh, and, and all of that. Uh, and Mike, I've been doing the show for over three years now, and you know, I've got my notes here. I don't think I've ever had an introduction fill an entire page. <laughs> so uh, we, we pride ourselves on a lot of firsts here on the show. So that's that's a first for that. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Mike, you're often described as an enthusiastic and optimistic leader. What is the source of that enthusiasm and optimism? And where does that wellspring come from? Yeah. So when you think about uh, how to describe yourself, there is this idea of resume versus eulogy. And, and the idea of you can look at what you've accomplished, what's on your resume, and then you can look at your eulogy, which is your character, who you are, how you made people feel. And so as I think about those words, enthusiastic, optimistic, grateful, they're really part of my character. Uh, a lot of it comes from my upbringing. Uh, you know, I had wonderful parents uh, who pushed me hard. Um, neither of my parents, uh, you know, went to college. They both like said, "Hey, we want our kids you know, to go on and, you know, and to you know, to earn a degree." So that was part of our, our thinking from the very beginning of, you know, how can we reach our full potential? And at the time, that was certainly, I think, you know, going to college. Um, we can have a conversation on that later. You know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the, the same. You know, 30 years later as it was back then. But you know, I think that you know, a lot of my background on that is sort of God-given. It's DNA. It's genetics. We're all encoded differently. Uh, you can see for those, I'm guessing this is mostly audio, right? But if you were to see it, you can see that, um, you know, I talk with my hands. I talk fast. I talk with a lot of intensity uh, and pace. That's just naturally who I am. In fact, it sounds really weird if I were to talk like in a very like low-key, balanced, measured way. People are like, are you all right? Uh, because it's just not me. So I think a lot of it is just genetically, um, you know, who I am. But then also, you know, I have sought out from education to organizations I've been a part of, things that really give me energy. And so when you think about uh, things in life that, that consume energy versus give you energy, I participate in and lead and am involved in a lot of things that are energy givers. And so to me, that makes my ability to be grateful, my ability to um, be enthusiastic, a lot easier. 
you know? And so I think it's that combination of nature and nurture. You served in three combat tours with the 1st Cavalry Division and 3rd Special Forces Group. With your deployment to Operation Iraqi Freedom in 2004-05, that involved the battles of Fallujah and Najaf. Mm -hmm. We know that Fallujah and Najaf were among the most vicious and deadly battles our military has fought in several years. I work with a number of veterans who have experienced post-traumatic stress, and I can't help but ask, how did your time there affect you? Was your positivity something you took with you? Were there after effects? Yeah. So uh, to walk that back a little bit, uh, when I was a plebe, a freshman at West Point, 1998 to 99, I spent a lot of time in that plebe year feeling sorry for myself. Um, you know, life is hard. I was only getting about five and a half hours of sleep a night. There was lots of stress. At the end of the day, no one was shooting at you, right? So you're, you're, you were not, you know, in terms of safety, you know, you were safe, but there was so much pressure and stress that it was easy to feel sorry for yourself. And so I, I did that a lot. Uh, and then uh, at the end of my freshman year, my parents actually handed me a bunch of the letters that I had written home and some of the emails that I had written home in my first year. And I looked at them, you know, in aggregate, and I was like, wow, like I was really looking for a pity party. And so I really kind of committed to after that freshman year to making a change uh, and, and saying, hey, I'm going to be going through hard times for sure, the pressure, the adversity. Um, but it doesn't do me actually any good to make other people like pull them into that, you know, with me, right. To make them sit there and say, geez, I feel so bad for Mike right now. He's only getting five and a half hours of sleep at night, you know? And so that was part of my mental shift that I started to make as a cadet. And I was able to apply that in my time in service and especially on deployments, uh, again, far from home. Now this time there is a risk for your health and for your safety. Um, but you know, you're eating poorly, you're sleeping on cots, you know, all those things that make it, um, not very, uh, you know, easy to, to always bring uh, cheer to the, <laughs> to the given day. Uh, and then the seriousness of it, right. That we were, you know, some of us losing soldiers and soldiers were being severely wounded and right. And so that also took a toll on, on me psychologically, but overall, you know, my role as an intelligence officer was to support the war fighter, support the infantry. And then eventually when I went to third special forces group to support green berets on the ground. Um, and so I was not out there, on the con op, on the objective of being shot at or potentially blown up. I did go out on some missions and you know, there was some times when I got shot at and, and things like that. But ultimately, um, you know, my experience, especially in the battles of Najaf and Fallujah in August and November of 2004 were very formative events in my life because it was more hick, high intensity conflict than it was counterinsurgency, right? It was more what war felt like 50, 75 years ago in World War I and World War II. Uh, and so, yeah, there was a degree of intensity there um, that was hard to describe and certainly something that, that as much as I was prepared for it, I really wasn't. Um, but ultimately, I was able to you know, grow through that process uh, because uh, you know, I was able to observe what was happening uh, and I was able to, to fulfill my role as an intelligence officer. Uh, we were successful, you know, tactically and operationally in both battles, which also helped. Uh, and so all of that coming together, you know, made those to be actually very formative and uh, positive experiences for me, even though it was violence and it was, you know, a lot of things, it actually made me more resilient. It made me tougher, no showers uh, uh, for 34 days in the Battle of Najaf. My, my uniform, my military uniform could stand straight up. It looked like it was like cardboard because it had so much salt in it. You know, when you go through those things, um, you know, it gives you confidence in, in the ability to know that you can withstand a lot. And I was able to apply that understanding and that logic to the rest of my life. 
In the face of adversity, including being in life-threatening combat zones and separated from family and friends for such long periods of time, what coping mechanisms or strategies do you find most effective for maintaining your mental and emotional well-being? So mental and emotional well-being is certainly a hot topic you know, in the world today, especially in America, as we think about how do we maintain that as the world around us sometimes seems to spin out of control when there's things that are outside our control. Um, you know, so for me, a, a lot of my mental, you know, well-being, um, you know, it stems from my faith, you know, for sure. Uh, I've grown a lot stronger in my faith over the past 15, you know, to 20 years. Um, but that played a big role, right? Uh, tied into that is solitude. The, the topic of my first book, Lead Yourself First, that I co-authored with Ray Kethledge, focused a lot on solitude. And I would take walks, right? And I would, I would then work my way in my mind. I would work my way through my problems and my challenges and my emotion, the, you know, the emotional roller coaster of just the given day. I miss home, being homesick, uh, you know, hearing that, that there's a unit that's out there, troops in contact. Um, it's really hot out. I'm really hungry. Think of all the things that kind of converge into your world. Uh, and I was able to unpack a lot of that in my walk about a mile to the dining facility, each direction. So I ended up walking for about 35, 40 minutes every day. Uh, and I would almost always go on my own. Uh, I then applied that fast forward later uh, in 2009, 10 and 11, when I was at grad school at the University of Michigan, when founding Team Red, White and Blue. So I'm a huge believer in solitude, turning inward. That's a chance to talk to God. That's a chance to, uh, to get inside your mind and to listen to your heart. Uh, and to understand what you need to do. And I'm a huge believer in that as a coping mechanism. Uh, but the other coping mechanism, which seems like it's the other sides of the coin, or it might even seem uh, antithetical to solitude, is relationships. Arguably, one of the best coping mechanisms out there behind our faith and leaning into our faith and leaning into it and, and, and really listening right, uh, to our soul and, and to the message you know, that God has for us, I believe, is also people. Right. And so when we think about relationships, you know, in the psychology lesson of healthy coping, um, other people, relationships are right there at the top of the list. Right. Those people are there for us when we're struggling, uh, when we're having a bad day, they can pull us out. They can reach down and, and with a hand and help pull us up. They can just listen if we just need to kind of vent or, or, or share our frustrations or share our worries with them. And so one of the other best coping mechanisms is people. How do your fellow service members contribute to building a sense of resilience within the military unit? And how does that camaraderie influence resilience in situations where you're under stress and on your guard 24 hours a day, seven days a week? Yeah, so going back to this idea so of the role that people and other people and relationships play in resilience, when you think about camaraderie uh, and, and like the brotherhood of, of a tight-knit unit or a team or even a friendship, right? That's camaraderie. Um, I think that is absolutely essential to being resilient. Like I love the way uh, thinking about resilience through the lens of it's the ability to, um, to persevere through, uh, you know, to adapt to and to learn from adversity. And so um, ultimately you do all those things better, right? When you, when you have other people in your corner, um, you know, we are nothing we do, even like the most successful individual athletes or pianists or singers or uh, individuals can only be so successful on their own. They've got coaches, they've got supportive families. And like, we need an ecosystem of people around us. Life is a team sport, you know? And, and I think that 
it's that's the reason why we're better at resilience when we have camaraderie, when we have relationships. And as your question just kind of alluded to, Chris, is like the higher the stakes, the more the pressure, the hotter the kitchen. We use whatever analogy you want, right? The more that that is happening, right? The more important those relationships become, uh, because ultimately we can even though the strongest, most resilient people can eventually crack, right? Under under some of that pressure, but when we have those relationships. We can lean into them. Those people can be there to support us. And I think that's a really important thing to never lose sight of because I do see this happening in the world a lot today, right? Like the world has gotten increasingly individualistic and a lot of people think that they can zoom in or participate virtually or they don't need a community uh, as much as they used to. Uh, if you've ever read the book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam in 1997, like, like that's, that's a very real conversation today that I think a lot of people have forgotten what it is like to be a part of a meaningful community. Uh, and therefore they're missing out on the camaraderie and the capacity to be more resilient because that community supports them. Were there any mentors or leaders in the military who play a significant role, <clears throat> excuse me, in shaping your resilience? And if so, how do they influence you? So like a lot of people in the military, I, I had great examples uh, of leaders and, and poor examples of leaders. Um, I, I think pretty much anyone you talk to, probably in any sector, but definitely in the military, will will say that that they experience both ends of the spectrum. Yeah, I had some tremendous leaders. I was very fortunate. Uh, I had a couple of wonderful battalion commanders. Lieutenant, then Lieutenant Colonel, now full full General Jim Rainey, was my battalion commander in the Battle of Najaf and Fallujah. He's currently the commander of Futures Command in, uh, outside Austin, Texas. Yeah, he was phenomenal. He came into our unit actually at a time of leadership crisis. Our battalion commander and sergeant major were both relieved by Major General Corelli, the commander of the 1st Cav Division, uh, in May of 2004. Uh, and so coming into a, a moment of like leadership crisis, he provided a lot of stability. Uh, you know, he really leaned in and, and uh, showed us what it was like to work hard, but also to keep calm under pressure. Um, and so that was a wonderful example. And then, you know, I had, um, you know, in my time at third group, in my time at West Point, you know, lots of different leaders that played a significant role in, you know, in my life, um, especially in terms of being resilient, but I, Lieutenant, then Lieutenant Colonel Jim Rainey is, is probably the one who comes to mind the most. Cause I was the youngest, I was 24 years old. I was the first Lieutenant, uh, and boy, was it a combustible situation in Iraq, you know, uh, you know, Abu, the Abu Ghraib uh, prison scandal had just emerged. It was starting to get really, really uh, intense, you know, in Iraq. And we just lose our battalion commander and sergeant major. And he, and he came in uh, and really calmed things down in short order. Uh, and that was something that I'll, I'll always remember 20 years ago. You mentioned General Corelli. Uh, I've had the, the pleasure and honor of meeting him a few times. And one of my favorite stories of him is how he would always mock President Bush for slaughtering his last name with his yeah. Texas accent and call him <laughs> General Chiarelli. <laughs> it's one of my yeah. favorite things about, yeah. about him, but also the work he's done yeah. in his retirement from the military in, in terms of mental health and one mind. And so just a great American, great patriot, great hero. Absolutely. You mentioned earlier your faith and your solitude. Mm -hmm. How big of a role did faith play in your resilience and well-being while in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, you know, it played... Uh, a really big role. Uh, the reality is when I was back garrison um, as a lieutenant and as a young captain, I was busy traveling, running marathons. Uh, you know, I would still make it to mass. You know, so I'm a Catholic, so I would still make it to mass on Sundays when I could. Um, but it was not the top priority in my life. Um, 
And, and when, you know, the old saying, there's no atheists in the foxhole, uh, like certainly like the, you, the more pressure you find yourself in, the more, you know, you, you find yourself just instinctively turning, you know, to God um, for a sense of understanding, a sense of peace, a sense of, uh, sometimes in, some people are in a sense of desperation, you know? Um, and so for me, like, while in my 20s, you know, I was, you know, when I was, when life was good, when there was no pressure, right, when I was back in the States, you know, traveling, partying, running marathons, um, you know, my faith was like moderately relevant to me. But over there on all three deployments, all of a sudden it became very important again, you know, uh, and I found that time again in solitude on walks and on runs by myself uh, in both combat zones where that solitude and, and that conversation with God was instrumental to my mental well-being. You know, this is a thing. And look, I know they say you should never talk politics and religion, right? Or something like that, you know, with people because, you know, you can ruffle people's feathers. And I get it, right? Everyone's got uh, different views politically, different views from a religious standpoint. But I think it's something that, you know, is really hindering the resilience of America and the resilience of a lot of people in uh, the world today is a lack of willingness or a lack of interest in talking about faith. Because uh, it doesn't have to be that you have to believe what I believe, right? But but certainly the belief in a, a higher power that is responsible for making all of this. I mean, Chris, I, I think about this and it just blows my mind. You know, we're traveling around in an orbit around the sun at, at an estimated sixty-seven thousand miles an hour, right? And and it's everything from the tides to the moon to the sunrise and the sunset is all predictable because it's like clockwork. And you're like. How does that happen? <laughs> you know, right? Like, and then you think about photosynthesis and oxygen and carbon and how it, it all comes together, right? Like, so to me, like, that's a, a big part of the conversation that I think, you know, we should be having more is not like you should believe what I believe or that, you know, I want to push my views on you, but I should be pushing views on you to think of somehow to make sense of what is your relationship with your higher power. Um, and look, some people, you know, who don't believe, I, I would push people who, who are atheists, like, what, why is that, right? Because, like, to me, like, I think it's very difficult to be resilient if you can't make sense of all the suffering and all the problems of the world uh, in light of, uh, you know, the, the, the role that, that God has played in creating all of this. You had three deployments. How was your adjustment period for you each time you returned home? And did it take the same amount of time to begin to feel safe again? Or was there a cumulative effect? Yeah. So for me, at my first year in Iraq, I came home and no, I mean, I was pretty, I think pretty young, 24 years old. So um, came back home and just kind of picked up, you know, again, like the, you know, going to different parts of Texas and going and traveling and, and seeing different parts of the country. Um, you know, then when I was in third group, uh, and, and I came back in 07 and I came back in 09 for me, the big, the big part was after my third deployment in 09, cause I came back to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And then I went immediately to grad school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so for me, that transition was by far the most complicated because I went from a military installation to a state that, that didn't have, I don't, I believe it doesn't even have an active duty military base. Right. And, and so like the state, while it, it, certainly understood the military. It sends its children into the military. Like it's not like Texas or North Carolina or Florida or lots of other states that have got big military bases. And so for me, that was you know, a, a much more difficult transition, which is honestly, which led me to create team red, white, and blue, you know, in early 2010, the creation of that was driven by my transition from 
Afghanistan to, to North Carolina to Michigan in all a matter of six weeks. And it was very disorienting. And I thought to myself, geez, how do, and I was still in the army. Like the, I was still being paid. I still had medical insurance and all that because the army was sending me to grad school. I was like, I can't imagine being a, a service member who leaves the military and just jumps right out into the civilian world like that. That would be wildly complicated and challenging. Let's stick with the University of Michigan for a moment. How are you feeling this year with the f- football playoffs? Oh, yeah. You know, much better this year than last. You know, when I was there, ironically, the football team was terrible. Um, I started doing some leadership work with the basketball team, which went on to have two Final Four appearances, uh, 2013 and 2018, I believe, with Coach John Beeline. But the football team was terrible when I was there. <laughs> so uh, it's crazy to see, like, the, these years later, I think they're, they're looking really good. You know, uh, their defense is just unbelievable. I think they got a really good head about, you know, uh, keeping their you know head on their shoulders amid like all the success that they've had. Um, but, you know, I, I didn't feel great last year. I, I had a feeling it would be tough for them last year. Um, of course, they got knocked out by TCU. But I think that they got a, uh, as good as a chance as any, I believe, to take home the national championship this year. It feels different this year. I agree. I agree. Yeah. All right. Back to more serious stuff. In what ways do you think the military could improve its support systems for veterans' mental health and well-being? So when you think about mental health, you know, I view it as a sliding scale. And that means that for some people, because uh, again, I think sometimes they hear the word mental health or health and well-being, right? And, and they often conflate that with mood. Because like mood is not mental health, right? You, we're going to be as human beings in good and bad moods, right? Like I'm in a good mood when I get off the Jacob's Ladder or the Concept 2 rower or I go for a ruck or a run. Right. Uh, I go I feel in a bad mood when I swipe on my Instagram feed for 20 minutes on the couch. Right. Um, When I could have been doing something meaningful, like reading a book or talking to my kids. Right. And so our mood will oscillate throughout the given day based upon what we're doing. For me, like I think mental health really is much more a conversation of systematically. How are we structuring our lives? What are we prioritizing into our lives? And so to me, you know, Certainly, the, the military and veteran community, let, let me say it two, two sides of the coin. The military, you know, clearly, uh, you know, when you're in the military, active duty, guard, reserves, like the military does have a partial responsibility for your mental health because it has a direct application to how well you can do your job. <laughs> I think the military, you know, has been taking, you know, this certainly more seriously, uh, you know, over the past 15 to 20 years. I remember going back to General Rainey, then Lieutenant Colonel Rainey. You know, he, he talked about doing, quote, unquote, PT for our minds, you know, training for our minds, just like we do for our bodies. Uh, and so I think that that was a really uh, uh, powerful way of looking at it and explaining why it's important to work on our resilience and work on our mental strength. When it comes to the veteran side of it, this is where it gets tricky because you're no longer, you, you know, owned by the military, controlled by the military. And so depending on what you do, if you go work for yourself or you go work for another company, uh, and so it gets a lot trickier. And so what we do at Team Red, White, and Blue is we really emphasize agency, the power that veterans have over their own mental health, and by specifically tapping into a couple of things, physical activity and community, right? Relationships and exercise are two things that are at our fingertips, right? Hiking, walking, running, rucking, four things, four, four ways you can take the Ankle Express, right, uh, that cost you basically nothing right? Um, you can do it almost anywhere. You can walk out your door, walk out wherever you're at, and you can get in steps. Uh, and I think that's where the conversation's got to go. It's not about 
being a CrossFit animal or going to, um, you know, being able to do specific yoga poses or, or do it an Ironman. Like those are all great. If like, that's your thing. I think we, the conversation has to move to movement, walking, hiking, running, rucking. And for me, that's where my mind goes, where the veteran community, that this is a leadership, the team at Red, White and Blue is trying to provide to the veteran community. And we're trying to challenge veterans to, to know the power that they have over their own mental health and well-being by moving their body. And then ideally moving your body alongside somebody. It can be one person, it can be a workout buddy, it can be a running buddy, it can be a kid, a spouse. Uh, and sometimes, yes, on your own, right? Sometimes you go out there and just go for a walk on your own, go for a run on your own. Give yourself space to clear your head. If you can come together in that combination of getting outside, moving your body in solitude, getting outside, moving your body with other people, talking through things, you've got a powerful one-two punch to cope with the stress and the adversity of life, right? And so that's really what we're doing at Team Red, White, and Blue. And lead yourself first, not surprisingly, given the title you write, leadership is a relationship, but the first person you must lead is yourself. Mm -hmm. Different people have different definitions of leadership. How you define a good leader and in what ways does one need to lead themselves before they can lead others? So I spent some time, I had the huge honor of spending time with one of my great mentors, Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great and Built to Last. Uh, just, you know, one of the world's most prolific thinkers about leadership and about organizational culture and success. Yeah. And he said, hey, after spending all this time studying all these various definitions of leadership and studying all these different leaders, he concluded, uh, and therefore I conclude, uh, you know, that his favorite definition, what he believes to be the most complete and the most accurate is that leadership is the art of getting other people to do what needs to be done because they want to do it. Uh, and that comes from, it's inspired by General Eisenhower, General slash President Eisenhower. And so, right, it's this idea, and I'll just break it down real quick. It's four parts. It's an art, not a science. The world is obsessed with algorithms and optimizing things. Well, ultimately, leadership is an art. Yes, you can apply science and learning and research, but it's an art too. It's about getting other people to do. If you're the one doing the work, then you're doing the work. Leadership is really about getting other people to do. Part three, what needs to be done? I say this frequently, but anybody can get somebody to binge watch Netflix or to do something very easy, right? Uh, but it takes leadership to get somebody to do something that's hard, that's uncomfortable, that isn't fun, right? And then the last part of that is dot, 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 because they want to do it. Um, if someone do, does something out of fear, or because uh, they're afraid they're going to get yelled at or because of they're afraid that they're going to get in trouble. Right? That's really power. Right? Uh, that's not leadership, at least not leadership at, at, its, at its apex. At the highest point in its purest form, as Jim Collins writes in the foreword of Lead Yourself First, in its purest form, leadership exists when people follow and they don't have to. And so that's the, my favorite way of thinking about and framing up leadership for myself, but also as I engage in and I talk to other people about it. We've been talking to Mike Irwin and we'll be right back after a short break. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Love from the ashes out of the grave sweet 
Picture the heart-wrenching anguish a family endures when a child is abducted. Human trafficking is a worldwide crisis that plagues our society. Voices Against Trafficking stands as a voice for those entrapped in the depths of despair. Broken Treasures, You Hold the Key is a musical collection that showcases the dedication of artists and celebrities who were determined to protect the world's children. There is a way for you to make a difference right now. Visit VoicesAgainstTrafficking.com. The proceeds will go towards helping child victims. The power to liberate them rests in your hands. Cause I'm still alive. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. listening to Next Steps Forward. To reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com. Now, back to this week's show. And we are back. I'm Chris Meek, host of Next Steps Forward. My guest today is Mike Irwin. Mike graduated from the United States Military Academy at West Point in 2002 and went to serve on active duty for 13 years, including three deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan. He founded the nonprofit organization Team Red, White, and Blue, whose mission is to enrich the lives of America's veterans. He currently serves as the executive director to the 234,000 member organization and co-founded the Positivity Project, a nonprofit to empower America's youth to build positive relationships. Mike continues to proudly serve the nation as Lieutenant Colonel in the U.S. Army Reserves, assigned to the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he is an assistant professor in the Behavioral Sciences and Leadership Department. Mike, before the break, we spent a lot of time talking about leadership. Beyond the old walk the walk, don't just talk the talk admonition, how should someone who wants to be a positive and enthusiastic leader promote or instill those same attitudes among team members? Yeah, you know, instilling um, optimism or you know, gratitude or enthusiasm in other people, I, I think one of the, by default, one of the best ways you can do it is by your example. Uh, I, if you don't uh, demonstrate these things by your example, then I think it often feels either contrived or hypocritical or whatever it might be, you know, whatever, use whatever word you want. Because like people are like, well, if you're telling me this is important, but you don't demonstrate it yourself, right? Uh, it's kind of like telling someone to be humble, but you're not yourself, right? It just, it kind of really comes off, you know, as being comical, you know, uh, to arrogant, somewhere in between there, you know? So I think the biggest thing we can do really is the power of our example. And then think about the conversations we have. You know, the reality is some people are not, let's just take enthusiasm. You know, my wife, uh, the out of her 24 character strengths, enthusiasm is number 24 for her. It's number one for me. The reality is like she is not going to 
be enthusiastic about very many things in life. That's just not her default. It doesn't mean that she's not as excited about things as I am. It just means she doesn't demonstrate or show it accordingly. And so I think sometimes, you know, we can have conversations with people and explain to them, hey, just so you know, by not showing enthusiasm, uh, you know, it's often harder to interpret if, if you're actually having fun or not. Like, are you enjoying this dinner or not? Right. And so I think that sometimes we, there's all kinds of teachable moments in life where we can have conversations. Uh, and then we also learn from those conversations. We're not just the teachers in those moments. We're the, we are, we're the students because we learn from other people as well from how they're thinking about a situation. So, again, by your example and then through conversation. Now, at the same time, how do you balance being positive and enthusiastic with the need to maintain the leader follower hierarchy so you can provide constructive feedback or address performance issues rather than the team member thinking everybody's just friends and then anything can go? Yeah, this is the part about the military, obviously, where it's very natural to this, this conversation. It's between non-commissioned officers and commissioned officers. It's sir, ma'am. Uh, there's that line there. And I remember when I was a cadet hearing my tactical officer and my tactical non-commissioned officer talking about this, about why this is a thing. And ultimately, there could be a moment where you need to tell someone, the officer needs to give the order, hey, we need to take the hill. And it's if you're too buddy-buddy, if you're two friends, it's like, hey, Bob, all right, no, no problem, Mike. Um, or, hey, Mike, I don't think we should do that, right? There's this, there's, there is a degree of separation, I think, sometimes that comes with power and the hierarchy. And so I think that, uh, you know, you see this sometimes in special forces units. Often, like, the officers are, are called by their first name, by their, their soldiers. And so it can work, right, where you, you don't have that separation. But, like, I don't know. I, I think that sometimes the separation really does help. You know, I think it helps us to um, just re remember that, you know, there, there might be a situation here where I'm called to put my life on the line or put my safety, you know, uh, on the line here. And so that is the challenge. Like, how do you build deep, me meaningful, powerful relationships, but at the same time, do it in a way that, um, you know, does not overstep the bounds of, uh, of professionalism, you know, and you know, it, it is tough. I, th I think it's doable, um, but it definitely takes more intentionality and, and more thought. So there are ranks for a reason. Yeah, I mean, for, for sure. I mean, I, I, I think that, you know, and again, most of the time it's probably not that big of a deal, but it's like in those pressure cook moments when perhaps things, the stakes are the highest, where it might become a problem, you know, in the military or in any unit or any organization where you might have to put your life in the line or ask someone else to go do that if you're the leader. Well, I, I agree with you. There are ranks for a reason. That's why I say to my wife, yes, ma'am. So I totally understand. Yeah. <laughs> right. You founded Team Red, White, and Blue while you're working on your master's degree. So the classes weren't hard enough to keep your attention or, or what? Yeah. So, no, but, yeah, you know, so I, I came out of the deployment to Afghanistan where I was working probably 16 to 17 hours a day. And so my work engine was just, you know, the pistons were firing on all cylinders and you don't just come home, at least I don't. I don't have the kind of person that just comes home and like says, oh, let me, let me have as much, you know, downtime as possible, you know? So for me, I, I found it very useful to pour myself into something else. Uh, and that something else was Team Red, White, and Blue. Um, yeah, grad school, you know, I took, I think, a total of 12 credits per semester. Um, I worked on my grad school thesis. But honestly, I had probably all in 30 hours of, of work academic work between reading, writing, stats class, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and I was used to working 
90 hours a week. Uh, uh, so I was able to just scale that debt back to 60 hours a week, right? But put 30 hours into, it was almost a full-time job starting Team Red, White, and Blue. And I had that time and I found it actually very cathartic and helpful for me to make a difference for veterans, to make a difference for the military community right, at a time when I was going through some some guilt probably, uh, you know, that, hey, I wasn't over in Afghanistan where the surge was taking place. I was here, you know, back in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And so for me, it was very helpful on multiple fronts. Did you conduct any formal research or needs assessments within the veteran community to better understand the requirements and preferences for support? Or was the need just so obvious that it simply screamed out to you there was something needed to be done? So great question. Uh, I met with uh, a MSW, a social worker at the Ann Arbor VA hospital and said, hey, if I was to start a nonprofit organization, what, what is the need? What would it be? So I, I, I had a sample size of one, but she had a sample size of about 150 because she was a case manager for about 150 different, you know, post 9-11 veterans, right? So she was able to kind of see like over 100 veterans, what their struggles were, what their needs were. She then was able to draw her conclusions and then pass that on to me. Initially, like I went to grad school and the Green Berets in my unit basically said, hey, Irwin, you're going to go to grad school and you're going to get soft. You're going to stop exercising. And so, because uh, I was known as being a big runner and being pretty fit, and, and as the Intel guy, that was one of the biggest ways that I gained credibility with Green Berets was that I was very fit. And so they teased me on that and made that prediction that I was going to go to grad school and, and get soft. And so initially, like the idea was, hey, we're going to form a team of people who run marathons or ultra marathons and, and Ironmans and raise money by doing that to support veterans. That was the idea, right? But it became pretty obvious through the conversations uh, with her and with uh, other people in the space that actually the biggest need that veterans had was the community, was relationships, was somebody to have a coffee with or to go out to dinner with or to go on a run with. And so that's really what Team Red, White and Blue became focused on was, was that how do we mobilize Americans, veterans and non-veterans to step up and to help veterans you know, in, in their periods of transition. So, but ultimately like it, it was kind of obvious to me, but at the same time it wasn't. And it really was having conversations and learning from people uh, like Jen, you know, who were able to, to paint that picture for me. And how has team red, white, and blue evolved and adapted over time? And by that, I mean, have you collaborated with other veteran support organizations or government agencies? Yeah. So great, great question. So it, you know, we started out very much as a veteran transition and reintegration organization for our first decade. Uh, we certainly collaborate with lots of different organizations. But the big thing that we've done, Chris, over the past couple of years is we've evolved from being really focused on transition from service and reintegration into civilian life to building a health and wellness community. Um, when you look at the need for support, that veterans had to reintegrate, especially when a lot of them were coming right out of a combat zone and they were transitioning within two, three, four months into civilian life. I mean, they, a lot of veterans really, really struggled with that. And as the government's gotten better at it through the Skill Bridge program and by pushing back, you know, service members to start their transition process 18 months out, there's been some big steps taken that have made it a little bit less challenging for veterans to transition. Uh, the big thing here is that when it comes to health and wellness, there's pretty much nothing out there. You leave the military and if you're 
disciplined and highly motivated and you're passionate about physical fitness and your and your physical and mental health and then you go you on your own go join a crossfit gym or a yoga studio or a running group or whatever but if you don't if you if you don't find that or you can't afford that like we are really like the the only sh- like kind of sort of show in town so to speak in the veteran nonprofit landscape that has you know 150 plus chapters across the country and just a national team that you can join by by wearing the eagle and by going out to a park or a local event and just wearing the shirt and getting people excited about it, you know, uh, supporting the military and veteran community. Like, and so what we do is, from my view, obviously I'm biased. It's very very important, um, you know. And I think that this is you know, a, a big part of the conversation for Team Red, White, and Blue as we move into the future is how do we keep building out this health and wellness community? Because the reality is. It's getting harder and harder to be healthy in the world today, all right? As, as food gets more mass-produced uh, and more convenient, uh, as we have more screen time and, and more things dr- tr- drawing us into our computers and our phones and our televisions, um, all those things make it easier and easier to be sedentary. And, and so you've got to be really intentional about being healthy in the world today. You, if you just kind of go through doing the status quo and doing like, what most other people are doing, like you are going to end up very unhealthy, right? And that's just, that's just a, a hard truth. And so what we do, I think at Team Red, White and Blue, you know, by focusing on health and wellness through community uh, is only going to get more and more important as AI expands and as the, the world gets more digital and, and more challenging uh, for people to, you know, to, to be healthy. You just touched on health and wellness. What's your long-term vision for the organization and how we measure success five or 10 years from now? I think the long-term vision really is for us, you know, to, to reach a lot more veterans. That might sound kind of boring or kind of obvious, but that's the long-term goal. You know, it is very noisy in the world today. There are so many different books and podcasts and uh, organizations that want to help you veterans. Like the list goes on and on. There is just so much out there. And so like we know what we do works. We know what we have going is is powerful. But how do you one break through all the noise so that veterans actually know we exist, and then motivate them enough? Go back to leadership. Get other people to do what needs to be done. Motivate them enough to be able to join Team Red, White, Blue and become active, right? And so that's ultimately like the long term vision here is to to add a lot more veterans into the organization, but then also to become active in the organization because that's where the real transformation takes place. Um, you know, I don't have hard numbers set on it. Like, hey, we want to be a million members by, you know, 2030 or something like that. Um, you know, you can quote unquote buy members via acquisition on social media and digital marketing and all that. But like the way we grow most of our membership base is in real life and, and by one-on-one conversations. Uh, people will post on social media. They'll be at a race. They'll see someone running with the flag or wearing the eagle, right? And so we grow, well, a lot of our growth, Chris, is organic, uh, which means that a lot of people come to Team Red, White, and Blue, you know, for the right reasons. So, like to me, like the goal would be really how do we keep growing? How do we engage people so that they're not just like a member, you know, uh, you know, in a, on a, they don't just think they're like a name and an email address on a listserv but they're actually a real member of a real community who wants to help them out. Um, and, and I think that's, that's really like what the long-term vision is for, for what we're going to do. Well, and I can attest to that. It was about seven or eight years ago, I was doing some work with a Boston-based organization called the Home Base Foundation. Mm. 
and they have this run in Fenway and through Boston. It's about a nine-mile run, I think, called, called the Run to Home Base, which is really cool. You, you start out in right field. You run through Boston a little bit and come back, and you cross home plate is the finish yep. line. Team Red, White, and Blue had not just a small army, a <laughs> not quite a battalion, but there were there were a lot of T-shirts and eagles flying there. So, yeah. And this was seven, eight years ago. Yeah, that's awesome. I love to hear that. Yeah, I know. I, I, I can I can almost see the picture. If I can't see the exact picture, I can see what it what it looks like in my head. And, exactly. Uh, it's that powerful when you see that. So no, no question. And just for those who haven't participated in that, I highly encourage you to. Um, I'm a huge baseball fan. I'm a Yankee fan, so Fenway's a little yeah. tricky for me. Yeah. Uh, but the coolest thing was when you come in and you come in through right field and go around the left field line. As you come down third base, they're all active duty military there cheering for you and as you cross home plate they shake your hand and thank you for doing the run and so it should be the other way around obviously but yeah. uh, it's just a, a powerful thing to experience that's awesome so, so cool to hear that how do you think society can better understand and support the unique challenges faced by military veterans in terms of mental health and well-being so i think that the so first of all there is just a reality like that if you've not served in the military there's a certain amount of the experience that you can't necessarily understand um but what's really interesting, I think a lot of the research is starting to show this, that a lot of the mental health challenges and struggles that veterans have uh, actually stem from their, their earlier childhood and, and from their, their lives before the military. In other words, what you would find is that a lot of veterans you know, who might be terrorized by PTSD or who might you know, really be struggling um, from what they saw in war, that's definitely like true. But a lot of veterans, especially that are getting out now, who have served in the past eight to 10 years, have never deployed. And that's just a product of when they joined, when they were born, right? Like it's just the luck or the, or the bad luck of the draw, depending on how you look at it. Um, and so veterans' experiences, even within the military, are going to be drastically different. Some people who are Green Berets or infantry on the front lines or aviators or cooks or intel people. Uh, so even if you're in the same infantry unit or special forces unit, you're going to see a different, a, a wide array of different experiences. So I think it starts with you know getting to know a little bit of their story, getting getting to know a little bit of their journey. Hey, where were you in the military? What did you do? How was it to be deployed? You know, when were you scared? Like those are some I think thoughtful conversations that can unfold between uh, people, whether they've been in the military or not, and and and, and veterans. Uh, beyond that, I think that there are certain things that just work for mental health, regardless of whether the source of your stress or your PTSD or your anxiety is the military or not. Right. And it's things like physical activity. It's things like relationships. Um, you know, those kinds of things, healthy coping mechanisms. Uh, those are things that, that we can all do regardless of, you know, our background, regardless of whether we are in the military or not. And, and what our struggles are, we can tap into some of these uh, strategies, some of these coping mechanisms either way. And so I think that, just reminding sometimes we veterans or not need to be reminded, right. Uh, that, that we are more powerful often than we think. And to me, this is, this is a, a part of the solution here. And part of what we do at team red, white, and blue is reminding veterans that, Hey, you've been through a lot. You've done a lot in your military career. Like just by making it through basic training and making it through AIT or making it through beast barracks or, you know, let alone at a, a deployment or multiple deployments, you've been through a lot. If you have been through that and you have, Yes, maybe come out with some bruises or scars, but you've made it through that. You can make it through the transition. You can make it through the difficult chapters of your life that are yet to come, right? And I think sometimes that's just giving veterans the confidence to know that they have the character to be able to make it through hard times. Because hard times are coming for all, for all of us, no matter who you are. And of course, knowing how you're wired, 
You didn't stop with just one nonprofit. You also co-founded the Positivity Project in 2015, which is very different than Team Red, White, and Blue. Mm -hmm. What was your motivation and how have things unfolded over the past eight years? So uh, it starts from Dr. Chris Peterson, who is my academic advisor at the University of Michigan. He was one of the founders of the field of positive psychology. Uh, I studied under Chris for two years at Michigan. He suddenly and tragically died of a heart attack in October 2012. So about four, uh, 15 months or so after I left Michigan, he was actually supposed to come and speak at West Point uh, two weeks later before he died. Uh, and so that was really hard for me, you know, emotionally. You know, he had played such a pivotal role in my life. You know, when I came out of my third combat deployment, I was becoming a parent for the first time, working on my first book, starting my first nonprofit. I mean, it was a very busy chapter of my life. Um, and he was a real big part of that for me. And so one of it started with like a way to honor his legacy, a way to entrench his focus on character strengths and relationships. Um, and so, yeah, that's, that's where the idea started from, you know, really was a, a tribute to Chris. I partnered up with one of my friends from West Point, um, Jeff Bryan. And, you know, we started this out with one school and it was very rough around the edges. Hey, here's a, here's a rough idea of how I would teach the 24 character strengths and, you know, what we call the other people matter mindset. And, and those teachers and the principal and the counselor were like, hey, this is powerful. This is a great lens to look at teaching kids how to be better human beings, teaching them how to build good relationships in their life. And so, yeah, we went sort of whole hog, like, you know, full bore, like, uh, and, and went from one school to 33, and then 33 to 188, and then 188 to 525. And so we were growing like wildfire uh, in those first three or four years, much like Team Red, White, and Blue in the first three or four years, we caught lightning in a bottle, right? Um, and, and so we reached a lot of schools who were really interested in, hey, how do we start to work with our students on being better human beings, having more character, being able to connect with and to build relationships with other people, you know? And, and so just at a time when more educators were thinking about that, we had a powerful solution. And how can people learn more about both organizations and provide their support? Yeah, so you know, team, you know, either ones. The website's teamrdb.org and pauseproject.org uh, are the two websites. Uh, you know, you can join the team at Team Red, White, and Blue. You don't have to be a veteran. Seventy percent of our members are veterans, uh, but thirty percent are military family members or just great Americans who support veterans. You know, the positivity product is is really relevant. If you got children in school, if you're in education, if you know people in education, you can you can look into that and say. Hey, like, what is the strategy that my children's school or the school that I teach at, what is our strategy to build better humans, right? Because it's, it's no longer just about teaching math and reading and writing. It's what are we doing to develop things like integrity and humility and gratitude and forgiveness uh, in children so that they can demonstrate these character attributes for the rest of their life because it will serve them for the rest of their life. We have about two minutes left. You've been such a resilient and optimistic leader. Please share your words of wisdom for our listeners. First of all, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I love any conversation around resilience, around character, around Team Red, White, and Blue, veterans, mental health. These are all things that I, that I think about all the time. Um, yeah, I would say the biggest takeaway for me as I think about one of the big ideas that bridges all these different things together is this idea that other people matter. Uh, Dr. Chris Peterson at Michigan, you know, that he, he would go around the, the world giving talks as one of the founders of positive psychology. And he would, he would make this you know, kind of joke and he would say, hey, like, if you don't want to listen to me talk for like the next hour, you, just give me one more minute. 
Uh, I can sum up positive psychology in three words. Other people matter, period. Anything that builds relationships in and among people is going to make you happy. And so it's, you know, the number one driver of life satisfaction is the quality of our relationships. Relationships matter to our resilience. They matter to our ability, you know, to go through life, to, to solve problems, to build organizations, you name it. Relationships with, you know, life is, I said this before, but life is a team sport. And to me, that's the big thing. At the same time, relationships are very complicated. Other people are very complicated. They wear us down, right? They are challenging. That does not mean that the, ju the, uh, that the juice is not worth the squeeze. Let me say that positively. The juice is worth the squeeze. Leaning into relationships. Yes, you're going to have some fractured relationships along the way. Yes, you're going to have some bruises and scars from other people who betray you or hurt you. But ultimately, those relationships and those interactions with other people are still the magic and the beauty of life. Mike Irwin, thank you so much for being with us today. Absolutely, Chris. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. And thanks to our audience, which now includes people in over 50 countries, for joining us for another episode of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. For more details on upcoming shows and guests, please follow me on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash Chris Meek Public Figure, and then X, formerly known as Twitter, at Chris Meek underscore USA. This is our last live podcast of the year as we take time off for the holidays. The entire Next Steps Forward crew wishes you and yours a safe and happy holiday season. We look forward to seeing you in the new year. Same time, same place. When we talk with another leader from the world of business, politics, public policy, sports, or entertainment. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.